your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. It's found on page 855 in the Pew Bibles in front of you. I have to admit, I've been very excited and nervous all week to preach. Excited because I haven't preached in four weeks. Nervous because I was having surgery on Friday and I wasn't quite sure how much of my sermon I would actually remember this morning. My surgery went well on Friday and I've determined that if I ever have to choose a second career, I want to be the nurse that wakes up with patients after anesthesia because they, they say some crazy stuff. Uh, my wife tells me that after I woke up, the nurse told me, uh, gave me instructions that uh, I'm not to sign any legal contracts, drive any heavy equipment, or drink any alcohol. So I supposedly told the nurse that at 3 o'clock yesterday, I would go out and lease a bulldozer and drive it while drinking PBR. Um, <laughs> if that wasn't enough to mess with her, even though I'd had a block put in my arm and I could not feel from my shoulder to my hand, she was putting uh, my shirt on me and just to freak her out, I started screaming like I was in pain. She didn't think it was so funny. Um, and then I invited her to church. Uh, Turns out she's Baptist and she's not here this morning. <laughs> I don't have a transition from that other than this is a story we're going to read about, about another surprising visitor that startles someone else, that the Gospel of Luke begins with the birth of John the Baptist in the birth narrative. We're going to look at this entire story, but only read a portion of it beginning in verse 5 in chapter 1. It says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. For your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And then skip down to verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Now turn the page, and we're going to pick up reading in verse 57. 
Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zachariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered, and immediately his mouth was opened, and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's stand. You may be seated. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, may we hear the Master's word so that peace might fall on our souls. In the powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Now, most of you have probably heard, or most of you probably know, that this season before Christmas is often referred to as Advent by Christians. And Advent means coming. And during the season of Advent, we are looking back at the first coming of Jesus Christ, His birth. And we are looking forward to the second coming, His return. So this is something we've been talking about in our household with our three children. My mom sent us this thing called the Jesse's Tree, which we basically open up an ornament every day, and then we read some promise in Scripture as we anticipate the fulfillment of these promises in Christ. So we've been talking a lot about Advent and Jesus coming back in our house. And a few weeks ago, my wife and I were driving in the van with our three-year-old son, Hudson. And Hudson was talking about how excited he was for Jesus to come back. And he asked me and my wife if we were excited uh, for Jesus to come back, and we assured him that we were. And then he asked, is, is everyone excited for Jesus to come back? And my wife patiently explained that not everyone is excited for Jesus to come back because not everyone knows him, and so it's important that you tell others about Jesus. And Hudson got quiet for a moment, deep in thought, and then he spoke. And he said, I don't want to tell people about Jesus because I might be shipwrecked like Paul. <laughs> very honest, very insightful that sometimes trouble comes even to those who are following Jesus. And that's what this story is about in Luke chapter 1. And we're going to look at the trouble that Zechariah experienced and the good news or the gospel that came to him. Let's first consider the trouble that came to Zechariah. You see, we are told that Zechariah was a priest. He was living in the hill country and he was advanced in years. You could think of him as an old country pastor on the verge of retirement. His wife, Elizabeth, was the daughter of a priest, and this was considered a special blessing. And verse 6 tells us that they were righteous before God. It doesn't mean that they were perfect. It just means that they were godly. They loved their Hebrew Bibles, and they 
sought to live their lives before the Lord in a way that honored Him, yet they experienced trouble in at least three ways in this story. The first way that they experienced trouble, we are told in verse 5 that they were living in the days of Herod, who was king of Judea. Now remember, Israel was under the rule of Roman oppression at this time, and Herod was ruling this country. If you know anything about Herod, you know he was a cruel man. We know this from the historians Josephus, we know this from the Roman historian Octavius, and we know this from the biblical accounts. We know that he regularly abused his ten wives. We know that he killed one of his mother-in-law. He drowned his brother-in-law. He even murdered three of his twelve sons. And remember in the biblical account that he murdered all the infant boys in the land of Israel up to the age of two. These were troubling times for Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. They were living in difficult circumstances. Not only were they living in a land full of trouble, they were also experiencing trouble in their family. Because it tells us in verse 7 that they had no child because Elizabeth was barren. And we know that infertility in any time is especially painful and hard, but especially so in this time as it was seen as a disgrace when we read in verse 25. Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Elizabeth is speaking there. They were troubled because they longed to have children and they could not. And not only were they experiencing difficult circumstances in the land, not only were they experiencing trouble in their family life, but Zechariah was also experiencing trouble in his own soul. Let's pick up the story in verse 8. You see, we're told that he's a priest serving out in the hill country. And at this time, there were some 8,000 to 18,000 priests. And so the priest only got to serve at the temple about two weeks out of a year. And so this was the time that his section of priests was chosen to serve at the temple. And even then, they still had more priests than jobs. So they would cast lots to see who would get to go in and to offer the daily sacrifice or to offer the incense up that would symbolize the prayers of the people going up into heaven. And so they cast lots. And finally, the lot falls on Zechariah. And he is going to get to go near the Holy of Holies and offer the prayer of incense. Now for us, that doesn't sound like such a big deal. But for him, this was his Super Bowl. This was his World Series This was the high point of his career. Once a priest was chosen to do this, he could never do it again because they tried to let everyone have this experience, as many as possible. So this was to be the high point of his career. And so he walks in with his two assistants with a golden bowl going near the Holy of Holies to light the incense. He dismisses the two assistants. And as he's there offering up prayers for the people, he's suddenly startled. Why? Because the angel of the Lord appeared. Gabriel. And Gabriel spoke this word to him. He said, Zechariah, the Lord has heard your prayers. And you will have a son. And this son will cause you great joy. But not only is he going to make you very joyful, he is going to be a joy for the entire nation of Israel and the entire world. 
And how did Zechariah respond? He responded with doubt and with unbelief. He says, I'm old, but my wife is advanced in years. She's almost dead. How can we possibly have a baby? Zechariah, in that moment, though he is a priest, though that he knows all the stories of the Old Testament, he is not believing that God is powerful or good enough to answer that prayer. And so what does the angel Gabriel say? He says, I am Gabriel. I come from the presence of the Lord. And because of your unbelief, you will not be able to speak. You will be unable to speak. And you will be silent. Now my wife told me I have to explain why Zachariah was made mute and Mary wasn't when she questioned Gabriel. I think there's a couple reasons why. One, I think Zachariah is questioning Gabriel out of unbelief, not faith. I think Mary was questioning Gabriel out of faith. I believe you can do this, but how? I think Zechariah is questioning out of unbelief. Second thing we need to realize is this. God is personal. He knows every one of us and he has made us different. We are all unique. He knows the very hairs on our head. And you know this? God never writes two stories the same way. He never heals two people the same way. Some people who are blind, he spits on and some he touches. God is healing us in different ways. A third thing we need to keep in mind here when God is dealing with Zechariah is this. Zechariah is a man of God, and he has a relationship to God as father. And so God is not punishing him out of wrath, but he's loving him as a heavenly father, wanting him to get a glimpse of his glory and to place his trust in Zechariah and in, in God. So we see that Zechariah is made unable to speak because he doubts the goodness of God. Christians, this is something we all struggle with in some way, right? What are we to do with this trouble in the world? We all experience trouble in some way. We live in a time where there's murder. We live in a time when there's oppression. We live in a fallen world where families struggle, where people who want to have children can't have children. We live in a time where we even doubt God's goodness in our own lives and we struggle to believe the promises of God. Do you remember a few weeks ago that James even shared about doubts that he has? Doubts that not, you know, how is the Trinity possible, but doubts of does God even exist. I told James, I don't struggle with that. And then I told him, I don't struggle that God exists because I'm too busy being mad at him. What do I mean by that? My struggle is not to believe whether God exists, but my struggle is to believe that God is good. In the midst of a fallen world, when I read promises that have been made to us that He will work together all things for good for those who love Him. I want to say, really? Sometimes? When I'm struggling in temptation in my own sin and He says, I'll always give you a way out. No temptation will overcome you. I want to say, really? And when He makes that promise that He who began a good work in you will complete it and I'm feeling spiritually flat, I want to say, how? See, Christians, if we're honest, in our own soul, We all struggle with doubt because of trouble out in the world and also trouble in our own soul. Now, some of you may be here this morning and you may describe yourself as not a Christian and you may say, see, 
That's why I don't believe that a good God can exist with trouble. But you still have problems today, right? You still have to wrestle with this issue of trouble. You see, we all long for a world with no trouble. You know, James mentioned C.S. Lewis, and many would know him because of writing Chronicles of Narnia, but he was uh, an Oxford professor, a brilliant writer, and a thinker, and an ardent atheist up until the age of 31. And it was really through this problem of trouble and evil that he came to faith in Christ. You see, he reasoned that his experience told him that this was a good world gone bad. He looked around at the world and said, you know, evil can't simply just be an illusion or a feeling. It's real. Because you see, if I don't have an absolute standard, then I can't say that anything is evil. If God does not exist, then I can't call anything evil at all in the world. And he says, our experience tells us that evil exists. He says, even take a look at like dead bodies. We have an aversion to dead bodies. It's why movie producers make tons of money about movies about zombies, right? Because we have this natural fear towards dead bodies. And Lewis would say the reason why is because though death should be one of the most natural things for us, it is not. Death is an intruder, a stranger. It is unnatural and we have an aversion to it. You see, our experience tells us that this is a good world gone bad. And then Lewis would also say that we were created for a better world. And our desires uh, show this to us. He tells us that he argues with some of the philosophers that would say that Christianity or belief in God is simply some psychological invention. And Lewis would say just because we have a desire for God doesn't mean that he is true or is not true, but let's look at a few things in life. We have a desire when we are hungry, and something meets that desire, food. When we are thirsty, there are beverages. When we desire uh, rest, there is sleep. And Lewis would say, if you find yourself in a world that nothing can satisfy, it reveals that you were created for another world. Friends, we were created we're perfection. We're not supposed to get used to trouble in the world, but all of us, whether believers or non-believers, experience it. And what are you going to do when you experience trouble in your world? Lewis says we usually do one of three things. One, we will simply get rid of the thing that does not satisfy us. If it's the wrong spouse, get the right spouse. If it's the wrong job, get the right job. If it's the wrong house, get the right house. Keep going and going and changing and changing until you find something that satisfies you. Or, he says, number two, we can get cynical. We can believe that nothing will satisfy us and we stop putting our hope or desiring anything. Or number three, he tells us there's the better story. There's the good news. There's the Christian way. And that's what comes to Zechariah in this story. The gospel comes. When the angel Gabriel comes to Zechariah, what does he say? I bring you good news. The same word for gospel. 
I bring you good news, not just for you, but for your entire family. But he did not believe. And so as he comes out of the temple, as Zechariah comes out of the temple, he's expected to offer their ironic benediction. He comes out, and he's been in there so long, everybody wonders what's taking all this time. He comes out, and he cannot speak. And then he goes home. And you can just imagine how that conversation goes with Elizabeth. He can't speak to her, and he has to write out that they've been given this promise that they're going to have this child, and they're to name him John. And for nine months... Zachariah is unable to speak or hear alone in his own thoughts for the most part. He can't celebrate with Elizabeth. He can't join in the joyous conversations with neighbors who know what is coming until that one day when John is finally born, all the neighbors and all the friends and all the family members, they come over to the house to circumcise him on the eighth day. And they're amazed, and they want to name this son after Zachariah. They want to call him Zach Jr. And Elizabeth says, no, his name is John. And thank goodness for mothers, because they spare us from naming our children all kinds of weird names. I was determined I wanted to name Graham Boaz until Kelly told me that's not a good idea. I was thinking, Old Testament stud? What's wrong with that name? So we went with Graham instead. But... Elizabeth says his name is John. And then you have that relative that says, you can't name him John. There's nobody in your family named John. You have to name him after your your father, Zachariah. And so they go to Zachariah and they ask him. And he writes out in the Greek, first word, John is his name. Which means what? The Lord is gracious. Something has happened in Zachariah's soul over these nine months that moves him from unbelief to belief. What did he see that changed him? Two things, two quick things that Zachariah saw that I think we need to see. And how we know what Zachariah saw, I think, is because of the song of praise that he sings. Because immediately after he says his name is John, his tongue is loosed, and all this pent-up praise comes bursting out, what do you think he's been thinking of for the last nine months? It's amazing because the first thing that comes out of his mouth, it's not praise for his son, it's praise for God's son. And the first thing that Zechariah does, he sings a song about remembering the promises of of God. Look with me for just a moment at verse 68. He says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. That's a reference back to the exodus of the people being set free from Pharaoh. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. He recalls the Davidic covenant made almost a thousand years ago from 2 Samuel 7 where the promise was made to David that one of your descendants will be the king forever. And it will be the horn of salvation. What does horn mean? Not trumpet. It was like the horns on an oxen of a strong beast. It was a kingly picture. That this king was coming with salvation that was prophesied a thousand years ago and is about to be born. And then he goes on that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. What's a covenant? Promise. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham. 
You see, he goes back to David a thousand years and says, you kept that promise. And then he goes back a thousand more years to Abraham and says, you are keeping this promise. What is Zechariah doing in the midst of trouble? He is remembering God's covenant faithfulness. That though it takes hundreds of years, sometimes thousands of years, when God makes a promise and he promises good news, he fulfills it. Going all the way back to Genesis 3.15, that one day, the seed of the serpent, the serpent will be crushed by the seed. God is fulfilling that now, though it's been thousands and thousands of years. You see, in the midst of trouble, in the midst of insecurity, we need to stare at the character of God. When our circumstances don't make sense, trust in the character of God. What's the second thing that Zechariah praises God about? And what's the second thing that we need to see? It begins in verse 76. He switches from talking about the Messiah to talking about John the Baptist. He says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people and the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death. He is saying, John, when you get older, I want you to realize the part that you play in God's story. This is a father providing vision for his son. You know that reference in the Old Testament where there is no vision, the people perish? What is Zechariah doing here? He is pulling, he is elevating, he is looking at the story of the world from 50,000 feet, looking at creation, fall, redemption, and renewal, and saying, John has an important role to play. He is the announcer. He is the forerunner of the Messiah. And his life is to be about one thing. It's to call attention to Jesus. It's to bring glory to him. Now, when Jesus is talking about John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 11, he says something strange. He says that no one has been born greater of a woman than John the Baptist. Jesus is saying that John the Baptist is greater than David and greater than Abraham. That though David and Abraham both anticipated Jesus, John the Baptist was greater because Jesus was going to come on the scene and John the Baptist could point and say, there he is. There's the Messiah. And then Jesus will also say in Matthew chapter 11 that anyone in the kingdom of heaven today is greater than John the Baptist. Do you know what? We are greater than John the Baptist. We are greater than Abraham and we are greater than David. Why? Because we have been given a significant role to play. We are to call attention to Jesus in our lives. You see, Christmas is about many things, right? It's about giving gifts. It's about being nice to our neighbors. But most importantly, we are to show the world about the good news of Jesus Christ, about the Messiah being born of a virgin, living the life that we should have lived, dying the death that we should have died, reconciling, reconciling all of creation to himself. You see, we look back at the first coming of Jesus and we look forward to the second coming of Jesus and we realize that we have been given a role to play in the story of redemption and that gives us significance in life. 
It gives us the ability to endure trouble because we know that we are living for something greater than ourselves. Most of you know the movie Star Wars is about to come out. It's a good movie, right? People are going to dress up like Yoda and all these crazy things and they're going to have all these hypothetical conversations about X-wing fighters and all this sort of thing and we're going to get caught up in this fantasy of Star Wars. Why? It's a good story told well. But what Zechariah is doing is reminding us that we live in a true story, a better story, an epic story, and you have been given a significant role to play that the entire world is to see something about our God and about Jesus in the way that you live your life and respond to trouble. That one day, someday, on that glorious day, my King is coming back and He's going to make all things new. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, in the midst of a troubling time, when we live in troubled days and trouble exists in our family and trouble exists in our own soul, we pray that we would stare at the character of God, that we would remember your covenant faithfulness. Lord, we pray that you would impress upon us that we were living in a grand story, that we have a significant role to play, to call attention to Jesus, to point others to him, and to long for the day when our King of Kings returns and makes all things new. Sustain us until that day. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's take